If you all have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 John, we were there about a month ago. 1 John 3, I think we looked at verses 6 through 9, and today we're going to look at 10 through 18. Call it the test of love. The test of love explained. So we'll read here verses 10 through 18 in 1 John 3. And it says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And by this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And let's pray. Father, we just ask, Lord, that you'll speak to us through your word and remind us of our obligation, Lord, to, to love others and especially the brethren. And I thank you for speaking to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you watch a couple of pro football teams warm up and you didn't know anything about either team, you're just watching them warm up, you know, during the warm up, they'd probably appear equal. You know, they'd both have big guys. They'd look organized. They'd run fast in the warm-ups. They'd do their pre-game drills crisply, and the coaches would seem like they're in control of everything that's going on. And both teams are probably talking smack. But once the game starts, it becomes obvious which is the better team. Because at that point, once the game starts, the smack doesn't matter anymore. Looking good in a uniform is irrelevant. The coach holding the clipboard doesn't matter. All that matters is how they are performing. And that's what makes it evident which is the better team. And that's what John is saying here in verse 10. In this, if you look at verse 10. In this or by this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. So that word manifest there means evident, plainly to be seen or obvious. We talk about a manifested answer, but it's something you can plainly see. It's clearly seen. And so how does he say that the children of God and the children of the devil are obviously or plainly seen? How? By what they do. Not by what uniform they wear, how much smack they talk, or what coach or ministry they sit under. That's not what the term is. It's what they do, specifically whether they do righteousness or whether they love the brethren. Whether they love the brethren. John is saying here, do you want to know whether you're a Christian or whether someone else is a Christian? He says, just watch what they do, and it'll be plainly seen. You can talk about what Jesus means to you, how you love the word, how praise just brings a warm feeling in your heart, and on and on and on. But if you do things that are unrighteous, if you lie to get out of trouble, just make yourself look good, if you're somebody that's sneaking a peek at pornography consistently, stealing from your neighbor in a lot of different ways, coveting his possessions, or just tearing him down in your conversation because you're jealous, John says it's plain that you are not of God. It's that simple. I mean, he speaks of everything really in this book and even the Gospel of John in pretty black and white terms. He doesn't leave much gray area there. 
But that's the argument he's making really through chapter 3. I mean, he begins saying in verse 1 of chapter 3 that we should be called the children of God. What a blessing that is. And he's making the argument, how can you know that you're a child of God? And the two ways he's making that point is he says you'll know by whether you are a righteous person or whether you're a person that loves the brethren. Let's look at verse 10 here. And this is really a transitional verse where it says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or seen. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. We dealt with the whole righteousness issue, like I said, about a month ago. And he said in verse 7, he said, Let no man deceive you. So he's saying it's the one who does not the one who hears or just talks about righteousness that is righteous, but it's the one who does righteousness right before God. Because many people, I'm saying it happens all the time, they'll deceive themselves. They'll use foul language. They're constantly angry. They'll take advantage of people. They don't pray, don't read their Bible, never give of themselves. They'll never sacrifice or do anything really for anybody unless it's to their advantage. They're always kind of looking to be given to, and they base all the fact that they're going to heaven on that they prayed a prayer 10 years ago and got saved and that no one's perfect in thought, word, or deed. I hear that all the time when I'm in prison. Really, they're hiding behind a cloak of hypocrisy, really. And where will the hypocrite be in the time of judgment? So I had a neighbor a few years back, this is quite a few years ago, who was an Assemblies of God pastor. He was on TV in Louisville, very persuasive speaker, very good speaker. He could persuade a cockroach to get saved in broad daylight. I mean, that's how good he was. He talked religious to me uh, all the time, took me down to his church, took me to this prayer room, takes me in, here's our prayer room, dim the lights. I'm kind of thinking, this is a little strange, dimming the lights, me and you here in this prayer room, let's get out of here. But just some things about him, it just didn't sit well with me. But it wasn't all that evident or plain to see. Some things don't seem right here, but it's these little things I would notice. You know, here's the problem. You're a painter. You become like the paint on the walls. You're in somebody's house for a couple of weeks painting inside and out. And you just start seeing how people interact. And I'd notice how he would interact with his wife. He talked very condescendingly to his wife. And like I said, we got the old prayer room thing. And then when he took me around the church another time, he's telling me about this is what you do to move up in ministry. You've got to make connections and make da 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 I'm thinking, something doesn't seem right about this. And I asked him at one point, I said, well, why are you an Assemblies of God pastor? And he told me the reason he joined the Assemblies of God church, and he did it as a young man, was because it was a quote-unquote clean movement. Clean movement. And at the time, I thought, well, to me, that's kind of an odd answer. So I would think, for me anyways, I'm just thinking to myself, well, I would join a church because it was Bible-centered and Bible-based, not just because it was, quote-unquote, clean. I mean, I'm not saying a church should be unclean, obviously, right? But, I mean, just is that a reason to join a church? Well, as John says here, it all became clear, plain to see, evident, what spirit was controlling that man. Because... As far as I could see, he had the most loving, adoring wife that a man could ever want. And I saw all, all that go on. But her problem was, her problem was she didn't look like she did 25 years ago when they got married. And next thing you know, here's what happened. Ran off with a woman in church, quit the ministry, quit TV, and abandoned his family. Left it all behind. So what was murky became obvious. 
And it wasn't because of what he said. It was because of what he did. And the man exposed himself basically as a religious hypocrite. So he gained a pretty woman. But what about his soul? Job 27, 8 to 10 says this, For what is the hope of a hypocrite, though he has gained, when God takes away his soul? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? John's telling us here in this 1 John 3, don't be deceived by teaching, false teaching, that says you can live in sin and still make it to heaven. You can't live unrighteously. We know that in God, hear our cry. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, your life will prove and demonstrate whether you really are a child of God or whether you are not. What we are, we are bound to express. It doesn't matter what our clothing or our disguise may be. Our life or nature will show. It will eventually come out. You know, I just read that during the French Revolution of the 18th century, old King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, so they were attempting to flee the French Revolution dressed as common people. But here's the thing. Marie's true nature, who she was, couldn't be hidden because she was obsessed with smelling good and she loved perfume. And late 18th century France was described as being pungent. So they had open drains, cesspits, sewers. Taking baths was considered a luxury at that time. So some historians believe that the royal couple trying to escape dressed as the common people were discovered at the inn where they were staying or somewhere on the road because they could smell her. They smelled her out. So they said she was wearing the early French version of Chanel number no. five. Her true nature, who she was, it couldn't be hidden. It came out. Jesus says that in Matthew 7. You'll know them, we know this verse, you'll know them by their fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. He throws a warning in there, doesn't he? That's right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We need to be examining the fruit of our life. That's like speaking to me. Examine your fruit because he's like, you're going to be known by your fruit. And just so you know, let me throw this in there. Every bad tree, it's not going to just remain bad. It's going to be thrown into the fire. I mean, that ought to put the fear of God in us. That's what it's designed to do. He says, therefore, by their fruits, you will know. In other words, don't follow those with bad fruit. So John is transitioning here in this 10th verse into a second point about loving your brother. Both of these put together, whether you live a righteous life and whether you love your brother, will make it obvious to yourself and to others who is of God and who is of the devil. Look in verse 11. Why is it important to love others? Look what it says in verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The reason it's important is that is the message that Jesus gave at the beginning of his ministry. The Sermon on the Mount went up on the mount and spoke. That was one of the first things he spoke in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them 
which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even publicans the same. So he gives practical ways to show love, doesn't he? He says, bless others. Don't curse them back, those that curse you. He says, to bless them. He says, to do good to those that don't do good to you. Do good to them. Help them out. Smile. Give them a gift. Send them a card, whatever, to those that hate you. And that's not what you naturally would do. And a person who's just gotten over on you and done you wrong, he says to pray for that person. Don't plot against them. And why is that? Why does he say that? Because he's saying that's what this whole First John 3 is talking about. If we're children of God, then we should bear the nature of and show the nature of our Heavenly Father and His Spirit that lives in us. The question is, is this love that he talks about here, is it an option? Because Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. So the question would be, when has a commandment become an option? What do you think your military career would look like if you were a soldier, if your commanding officer gave you a command to charge and you just stood there with a defiant look on your face and refused to move? So I think you'd have a lot of inside information on potatoes, especially how to peel them. And in some cases, because you would be in trouble. <laughs> you might get shot if you refuse to obey your commander. John 15, he says this, says it again. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. This command, it's not optional. And it was part of the message. That's what John is saying here in Verse 11, it's the message that we heard from the beginning, from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the command that he gave his church. In verse 12, he begins to tell us what love is not. He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, a lot of times, this is the way the Bible works. I'm sorry. It starts off with the negative before it moves into the positive. So it's going to show us negatively, this is not what love is. And this is what we should not do. That's just the way it is. Just doing it in the order he gives it here. And in doing this, John goes all the way back to Genesis 4. Cain was the older brother to Abel. And it says that both of them, if you go back and read Genesis 4, brought an offering to God. Abel, it says, brought the first fruits of his flock. And the scripture says that God had respect or looked with favor at Abel's offering. But Cain, it says, brought, it doesn't say, if you read it carefully, it doesn't say that he brought the first fruits of his crop or of the ground. He brought some of the fruit of the ground and it said God didn't look with favor on it. So what's the problem, the offering Traditionally, you've been said, well, the one brought the lamb and the other one. I mean, if you read Leviticus 2, I'm saying there's one train of thought that says we really don't know. I think the problem was more with the person. And as a result of the person and their character, the offering that was brought. But Leviticus 2, one of the offerings, actually, it's a thank offering. And it's usually brought in conjunction with one of the sin offerings. But you read Leviticus 2, it's talking about bringing the fruit of the ground. 
I think the problem was with him, he was wicked, and in his wickedness, he just thinks, I'll just bring this thank offering from what the Lord's given me. And I believe Adam would have given them both clear instructions on this is what you should bring to come into the presence of the Lord. Because from Genesis to Revelation, a person could only come into the presence of the Lord and be made right with God through a blood sacrifice. It doesn't specifically say that that's why Cain was rejected, but I do think it was with the man and his character. Hebrews 11.4 says that Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. How did Abel, it say, offer his sacrifice? By faith. By faith, just like we do, right? When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we present his blood. We trust in his blood by faith that that will give us access to God. And in obedience to that, that's what we trust in, right? That's what we look to, his righteousness, his blood. We don't look to our own works. We don't present this is what we've done, our church attendance or whatever else, like a lot of people will do at times. It says that he was a sinner. I think Abel saw he was a sinner that needed forgiveness and atonement, like the publican that beat his chest. And said, God, be merciful, be propitiated through a sacrifice to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man went down to his house justified. It's the same word as righteous. Hebrews 11 says, through Abel's sacrifice, he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now, how God witnessed to that, I don't know. It could have been literally fire came down from heaven. It wouldn't be unusual for that to happen in the Bible. It doesn't really say Cain, though, was a self-righteous sinner. He didn't bring even the first fruits of his crops. It says, like I said, he brought some of his crops. And I think his sacrifice or his offering reflected his heart. He didn't really see the need to obey exactly what God had said and, and to do exactly what God had said, or there wouldn't have been a problem. And it says God had no respect for it. Because he was a wicked person. And the only way we're going to be made right is through faith in a blood atonement. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him that follows after righteousness. Let me repeat. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him that follows after righteousness. So the bottom line is, if you're wicked... Your praise, your prayers, your Bible reading, your religious talk, all of that, it's not just like God overlooks it. It says it's an abomination to him, which is pretty strong language. He has no respect for it. So, you know, you'll see those bumper stickers out everywhere you drive around. God hears prayer. But the thing is, does he? He doesn't hear all prayer, does he? We just read that verse in Proverbs 15, 8. Here's what happens. We talked about this two weeks ago. This whole deal about this is how love's not shown. When the wicked realize that they're not accepted by God, which that was Cain was upset about that, that God accepted his brother's sacrifice and didn't accept his. When a wicked person sees that and when they see that God's blessing rests on the righteous, there is a problem that takes place. And the problem actually didn't start in Genesis 4. The problem that we see manifested between Cain and Abel happened in Genesis 3. Look, you're either in one of two families on this earth. You're either in the family of God or you're in the family of Satan. There are no other families you're in. And in Genesis 3, when God pronounced the curse on the serpent or the devil, he said this. He said in Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And he said, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. 
between the righteous and the wicked. And that word enmity means personal hostility. What we're just going to see more and more and more evident as time moves on, and it's been here ever since Genesis 3, is that there is an enmity, this hostility that takes place between God's people and Satan's people, his children and, and God's children, those born of the devil and those born of God. And look what it says. It says Cain slew his brother. Look what it says. Verse 12, it says, not as Cain, we should love one another, but don't be like Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And it asked the question, why did he murder him? And it answers it because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. That word for slew is a strong word. It means to butcher or murder, to kill by violence, whether it's an animal or a man. It's used in both cases. So it's given this picture that he didn't just kill him. This wasn't accidental. He slaughtered him in anger. He, he killed him in anger. And why the hatred? We just read it at the end of verse 12. Why did he hate him to the point of killing him, his own brother? And it says there, his works, his own works were evil. And they were exposed and his brothers were righteous. So he slaughtered Abel, it's saying there, out of envy or jealousy, right? And we went through that. The same reason Jesus was murdered by the Pharisees. Mark 15, 10, for Pilate knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. So here's what happens. If we're living our Christian life like we should, what should happen? We should be exposing the darkness of this world that we're in, shouldn't we? We talked about that too, two weeks ago. In John 3, 19 to 20, it says this, that light has come into the world. It says this is the reason men are condemned. They're not condemned because they didn't believe in Jesus. They are, but they're condemned because light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. There we got John saying it in 1 John 3 and John 3. So a Christian, when they expose darkness by their righteous living, the world will hate us and they'll envy us because they'll know that we aren't condemned like them. It says that in Thessalonians and that we enjoy God's favor and they do not. That's a theme that is throughout the Bible, the righteous being hated by the wicked. So Genesis 27, 41, it says Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart the day of mourning for my father." Are at hand, and then when they're over, then I will slay my brother Jacob. Genesis 37 4. With Joseph, it says, When his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. That's just the way it is. Second Chronicles 18 7 says, But Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel, Ahab, Ahab was not a good man, in case you haven't read your Bible lately. Not a good man. But this is what he said. This is what he said to Jehoshaphat. There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. He says, but I hate him. And why did he hate him? He says, for he never prophesies good unto me, but always evil. The same as Micaiah ben Imlah, son of Imlah. Well, yeah, you know why, Ahab? Until you repent, there's not a whole lot of good in you. Not much good can be said about you. 
But he says, I hate that guy. I hate that prophet. Always pointing out my faults, that I'm wicked. (laughs) That's the way it is. That's why John says, look what he says here in verse 13. He says, well then, because of what I just said, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. And that word marvel means to be extraordinarily impressed. Don't wonder, don't be surprised, don't be shocked. I've said this before, the world may not even know why they hate you because there's a spirit working in them. It's the devil. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. So he's saying, don't be shocked if they hate you because you're like, well, I'm such a nice guy. I've never done them any wrong. Why don't they like me? We just read about four or five or six verses why they don't like you. (laughs) We just told. So listen, the world, they don't hate you because you're a good person or a nice person. They applaud people that are good or nice and do them favors, right? They don't hate you because of that. And they don't hate you because you're a hateful person. Now, they might if you're a hateful person, but then you're not living like a Christian. There was nothing hateful about Abel that calls Cain to slay him. The world hates you if it does hate you because you are a Christian and the Spirit of God is in you. Because listen, if they hate you just because you're good, what does it say about Jesus? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing what? Bad? They went about doing good. No man on earth combined. All of us combined have never done as much good as he's done. Yet they hated him, didn't they? The world absolutely hated him. And why did they hate him? Why? He says, You you hate me because I expose your sin. And when the Holy Spirit of the the Lord Jesus Christ is living in us and we expose the world's sin, they'll hate us for the same reason. He says we're not above the master. And that's what we can expect if we are living Christian lives. His light exposed the darkness and it got him in big time trouble. And Jesus said in the last days that we're in that Christians will be betrayed by parents and brothers and relatives, and it says some, not all, but some shall be put to death. And he says this in Luke 21, 17, he says, you shall be hated by all men for my namesake. Now, before I became a Christian, I had started reading my New Testament, and I could read and understand that much. There was a lot of things I couldn't understand. I understood that much, and that was part of it for me of counting the cost. Because I spent all my time and all my effort wanting to figure out how I could get people to like me better. That's all I did. And then I'm reading this and I'm thinking, this is going to destroy everything I've been working on for 21 years of my life. And it's like God was saying, so are you more wanting people to like you because you're like them and do the things they do and you know you're going to hell? Well, which do you want? (laughs) You want to keep all these people liking you? Thinking you're Mr. Cool, tell the dirty jokes at the insurance company and they all think you're funny and da-da-da-da-da. You got to make a choice there. So look, if you would turn to John, put something there and turn over to John 15. We'll see what the Lord says. John 15, beginning in verse 18. Look what it says. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which was written in their law. They have hated me without a cause. Hated me without a cause. So listen, because people, the world starts persecuting us and getting on our case, and all of a sudden we're not you know, in good standing in the community anymore. We just read, should that be a problem or should that be a surprise? That should actually be what we should expect, isn't it? That's what he said. I would say the world is not getting better. So back to 1 John. And look at verse 13. He says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That's the test. Here he's saying, if you want to know that you've passed from death to life, we need to understand we don't start loving people so that we can say, well, now we're Christians. You're not earning anything. That's not the thing. He's saying you can know that you've made that transition from over here. We all are born in death, born in sin, born into the kingdom of darkness. And it says that we become translated into the kingdom of light. And he says you can know that that transaction has taken place if the love of God is in you and if you love the brethren. So if you're just constantly struggling, you hate people, that's the way you live, then you're probably still over here is what he's telling you. That he's saying, if you've passed from death to life, you'll know that you have. That's the test because you have a love for the brethren. And that doesn't mean the brethren are always easy to love, but that's what he's saying. John 13, 35 says this, by this shall all men, including ourselves, know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. But I would say if you have unforgiveness, you can't talk to somebody. You can't stand the sight of somebody. You have bitterness towards somebody that you can't get rid of or you hate somebody and it shows up in a lot of ways. He's saying here, it, I didn't write it, but he's saying you still abide in death. Your home is death. And if you don't repent, you'll be abiding in the second death is what John is saying here, which is hell. Now, look in verse 15. He says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I've met a lot of guys through the years in prison that have murdered somebody and they struggle with whether they can be a Christian. Is that what he's saying in this statement here? I mean, you got to kind of put it all together. It's obvious Paul was a murderer. There have been a lot of murderers in the Bible that became Christians. He's saying if that's the way you abide, if that's the way you are, without repentance, obviously that's what he's saying. But what he's saying here, the test is that if you hate somebody, John says you're a murderer. And here's the thing. This whole idea didn't start with John. And so let's go back for the sake of completeness and let's read Matthew 5. And see what Jesus said about that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. And he says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. He says, but I, the Lord Jesus, say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother, and we know that without a cause is not in the original shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, 
shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool, you idiot, shall be in danger of hellfire. I mean, that's traffic talk there, isn't it? <laughs> that's I-64 talk. Verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say unto you, will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. What he's telling us here, and we all know this, is murder starts where? It begins in the heart. And that's what he's dealing with. And I use this example many times in prison. But O.J. Simpson, he brutally killed his wife and her lover. And I always ask people, do you think that happened? He did that and then he got angry? Or did he get jealous and angry and then slaughter him? Isn't that kind of the pattern? Isn't that the way it goes? It starts in here. That jealousy turns to anger, and that anger turns into murder, sometimes literal. But I'll tell people, you may not have killed anybody. I haven't killed anybody. Myself, personally, I've never murdered anybody. But through the years, it's not because of the goodness of my heart. It's because I didn't want to go to jail. I don't like the sight of blood. Don't consider. But it's not because I didn't, in a sense, wish they were out of here, eliminated. Isn't that what you do when you murder somebody? You're just eliminating them. And if we're honest, that's what happens. When you get mad towards somebody, you're, you're treating them that way. You're just, I want to eliminate that person out of my life and dealing with them in that way. And so God looks at the heart. Now, I'm not saying the actual anger or lust is equivalent in the sense of you actually commit adultery versus the look of lust or you are angry with somebody versus you actually kill somebody. But God looks at the heart and the intent of the heart and he is going to judge us on the basis of that, isn't he? I mean, that's what he's going to do. And he says, hatred, you are a murderer at heart if you're somebody that hates people and has bitterness and resentment. And we know the parable in Matthew 18 when Jesus says the person that can't forgive after he's been forgiven and goes out and chokes somebody that's done something relatively minor compared to all the mountain of sin we've committed against God. He says, that person, you're not going to be forgiven. And all this forgiveness that I have given you is not going to be there in the end. And so we just kind of need to remember that. So John says, don't be deceived. He says, no murderer, there is no murderer that has eternal life abiding in him. Somebody that could especially look at a brother and threaten him, there's something wrong. No one angry or hateful abides in life because he's saying you still have got the nature of your father, the devil. John 8, 44, Jesus told the Jews there and it made him pretty upset. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he said he abode not in the truth. But he goes on here in verse 16, back to 1 John 3, and he shows us what true love looks like. And look what it says in verse 16. He says, and by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. So that... Of God, we know the love of God. It's not in the original, that's why it's in italics. But he has just shown us that hate results in murder. So hate is a negative thing, isn't it? It seeks the other's harm. It leads to activity against him, even to the point of murder. It says Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. But love, on the other hand, is not negative, it's 
positive and it seeks the other person's good and leads to activity for him. So it says Cain rose up against it's against, it's going to do something negative and hurt the other person. Where we're saying love is positive, it is for the other person. And we have that said in the word that Christ laid down his life for us. He did something for us. The opposite of hate is love. It's a love that doesn't take life, but it gives life through sacrifice. Isn't that how it works? What we have here is the ultimate contrast. He's always dealing in black and white. Cain's hatred results in murder. And Christ's love results in what? His self-sacrifice for us. And William Law is this man's name, this old theologian. He said this simple sentence, love is the giving impulse. It's the impulse to give. And the beginning of this verse 16, it's telling us that the only way we know what true love is, is because of what our Lord did on the cross. Look what it says there. By this, this is how we can know what love is. It's not this false sentimentality that's the world and this feeling, emotion, or whatever, or this sensual, sexual thing. He says, by this we know love. How? Because he, the Lord, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And he's saying that's how we know he laid down his life for us and we should do the same for our brothers. It's not an option. It's an obligation. When it says there in the second part of verse 16, and we also ought to lay down our lives. That Greek word for ought means to be a debtor, to be bound. So it's not some temporary thing where we temporarily can love people or turn it off and on. It's not a debt that can be paid off. This love that we have for the brethren and other people is a permanent obligation. It's used in other places, that same word for ought. Like in 1 John 4.11, the next chapter over, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, if he so loved us, we ought also to love one another. There's that word again, ought. And it's also used of husbands and wives in Ephesians 5. So husbands ought. They have an obligation to love their own wives as their own bodies because he who loves his wife loves himself. Then you have an obligation to love your wife because in loving your wife, you're loving yourself. No one hates himself, he says. But there's an obligation there. It's not an option. Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything except to love one another. That word owe is that same word, ought, an obligation. People don't like this now. George Mueller built a whole orphanage off of it because he said they're going to trust the Lord. And I mean, how much clearer can it be that God, he'll supply everything we need. We don't have to get in debt for it than Matthew 6. How much clearer can it be? And all the verses that we've heard through the years about the bar subject to the lender is a slave to them. It's the way it is. And I'm telling you, this economy is not as strong as it may seem. People are going to get hung out to dry here, getting themselves over their head in debt. But we've been taught to trust the Lord. And not only that, like John shared with that man who he stayed with. If you read his book, I don't know if anybody got that, but it's a great book. Or you read George Mueller's life. And I've said this before. I'll say it again. That it's not only just that going into debt is, you know, we can get into all the financial stuff. of life. I understand how all that works. But I want to tell you what you're missing out on when you get a loan for every little thing you need done or anything for that matter. What you miss out on is the experience of walking with the Lord, seeing him answer your prayer, going through a trial and seeing his faithfulness to where then you have a testimony. 
Because I didn't see how this could work out. Just like John's testimony, he shared several examples of where he's trusting the Lord. Where would he have that testimony? How would he be able to relate to God's faithfulness if he hadn't have done that? If he'd have said, I'm going to borrow you know, $300 so my wife and I can go take our honeymoon because we want a nice honeymoon. Well, I, I mean, I'd rather hear, and I'm sure he would not give up that experience for a million dollars, would you? But that's what happens. So you don't want to trust the Lord for your finances, your healing, and there's all these avenues, and that seems to be the accepted way? Fine. But read Andrew Murray's book I have back there, and he says, when you go to the arm of the flesh, go to the doctors, go to the hospital, take your medicine and all that, but what you're doing is you're cutting yourself off from an experiencing of learning how to trust God and see his faithfulness and experience his supernatural power in your body. What happens when the mark of the beast comes? You know, you have to do whatever so you can go get help somewhere. What are you going to do then? What's the world going to do? Because it clearly says, if you read Revelation 13, there is going to come a time, the only way you are going to buy or sell is if you buy or sell your soul to the devil. And every single person that does that is going to perish in hell. That's what it says. Did I say anything new there, Mr. Rudy? That we haven't heard for 30 plus years in this church? Not a new thing. So I'm just telling y'all, I haven't changed what I believe about things. I believe that the Bible clearly teaches we are still to trust him for all things as we've been taught. I really think that's what the Bible clearly teaches. And I think it's been reinterpreted, though. We're heading into some end times where I think we're going to need to know to be able to trust the Lord. And he's there to be trusted. Amen. I'll say amen. Cain is given then as an example of hate. The supreme example of hate, and Jesus is given as the supreme example of love. What is the most precious possession that you have? It's your life. Isn't that what the devil said to the Lord about he'll give anything? Job will give up anything but his life, right? Take that, and he'll curse you to his face. That's the supreme possession we own. To take a life, to take someone's life, is the greatest sin we could commit against them, isn't it? That's why that Cain taking Abel's life was no small thing. But on the other hand, to give our life on his behalf is what? That's the greatest gift we could give, isn't it? To lay down your life. So the ultimate was what the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the ultimate sacrifice of love that he did on the cross, isn't it? Just the opposite of Cain. Had no love, just pure hatred and killed his brother, took the greatest possession he had. But Jesus says, I'll give up my greatest possession so that we can gain life. He's our example, isn't he? Say, don't be like Cain. That's the way the world is. Everybody's selfish in this world, wanting their own way, only nice when it pays. He's saying, here's the example we're to follow is our Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. So here's the thing. How many of us are literally going to be called to lay down our lives in death for another person? There's few of us are going to be called to do that. So John gives a practical way that we can lay down our lives. And he has that in verse 17. And it says there, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? How does the love of God abide in him? So if you've got two warm coats and you see somebody that doesn't have any, he's saying, how can the love of God abide in you when you just sit back and watch him suffer without sacrificing at least one of your coats in love? That's what he's saying here. Or you've got plenty to eat and extra money, and you've got a neighbor or someone in church that's lost a job and has five kids to feed. 
can't go to the grocery, how can you sit back and not help them out? That's what John is saying. Or, you know, just something as simple as you're going down the street and you see somebody in a wheelchair struggling to get in through a doorway and you can just walk past them and not just take a minute to help them out. Just little things like that. I would even say sometimes people have deformities, physical deformities, and people tend to get picked on or whatever. And how can you see someone like that and not give them a word of encouragement? Now, I see that at prison all the time. Some of these guys have got deformities for a lot of reasons. And they just get picked on by people that even come in the chapel. I'm like, what in the world? How do you do that and call yourself a Christian? John, he just gives an illustration, an example. But he's saying love is very practical, isn't it? Very practical. Doesn't leave us wondering. And here's the two factors that he gives there that put us in this ought, this obligation, this debt that we'll never pay off. That debt we have to love other people, we'll never pay that one off. The other ones we need to get paid off. But the two things, the two factors are we come across the need. We see the need. We hear of it. We see it. We know about it. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we have the resources to meet that need. And that's where the story of the Good Samaritan comes in. Look look what it says here in verse 18. He says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So in other words, you could sum that up in three words, what John's saying there, my translation. Talk is cheap is what he's saying. So he's saying, don't love in word, neither in tongue. Tongues produce words, but he says, do what? Do it in deed and in truth truth. The truth of God's word will produce true love, true deeds of love, because sometimes helping somebody out is not really what you should be doing. You know, I mean, you need the discernment of God's word to know how to help, when to help, ways to help in the right way, because the world has ways of helping that aren't always the best. (laughs) But I said that about the Good Samaritans, you know, in Luke 10, where we have that story, this lawyer He comes to Jesus. His question is, the Good Samaritan is tied to a question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in essence, tells him what you should do, you can't do without the new birth, is what he basically tells him. Because his answer was this, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And after he said that, he illustrates what he's he's saying by giving the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have the lawyer and the Pharisees, and they're walking by the man, aren't they? The priest and the Levite, they walk by the two religious leaders who would have known what the law says in word and in deed. They would have taught this in word, I'm saying. Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when they had a chance to put that into practice, they walked as far away from that man as they could. Because they're so worried about having themselves defiled. And it just shows what their heart was. That's why Jesus said that. He goes, in your heart you hate people. You've got to have your heart changed. You can't hate people and make it into heaven. That's not going to be heaven. And he gives the example of the despised Samaritan. Here is a man that God has done a work in his heart. He doesn't pass this guy by. And not only does he just come over to see what's happening, he helps him, takes him to the inn, basically gives the innkeeper his credit card and just says, here, just ring up whatever you have to. Here's my credit card. I'll come back and see how things are going after a while. He's saying that's what Christian love is, and that's what John is telling us here. And that's really what you see operating in the church. People here at our church, I feel like, 
you know, really as far as helping people out, as far as I know, whenever there's been a need, you put a white bucket in the back, people are very generous here. They are. They have been through the years. We had a pastor for 30-some years that was very generous, and I think it kind of sets the tone. We'll end with this. If you want to turn back to Acts 4.32, and we'll see how it was in the early church, and we'll end with this. And here's what spirit-filled living should be like. Acts 4.32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need." So I'm saying right there we see what John is teaching in action. It was an action in the early church. So they looked at anything they had. If they had something that was going to benefit someone else, this is not talking about people take this into being communal living. Obviously, he's not teaching that because people still had houses. But anything they had that would benefit that they didn't need, they would sell to help others and bring it to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed so you didn't have people that were wealthy and someone that was poor that couldn't help themselves. Now, he makes it clear a person is just looking for a handout and is not willing to work. We know what he says about that, doesn't he? If any man doesn't work, neither should he eat. But some people get injured. I mean, I, I had an injury a while back, a few years back. I couldn't work. And I mean, man, oh man, I get handed this envelope. It was like two weeks pay for me. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I tell people that all the time. And they're like, yeah, and then, you know, then they're wanting to know where your church is and all that. But I said, we have a very generous group of people. I just honestly, I couldn't work and come out to my car. There's a five hundred dollar envelope in there. And I mean, you know, it's just that's the way God works. And that really that's an encouragement to you, isn't it? When that happens and God takes care of you. And that's how he works through us. Amen. All right. So we're going to work on love, aren't we? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word today, and I ask you, Father, that you will put it in all of our hearts that we can show that we are children of God, and, and we can know that, Lord, by the fact that we're living righteous lives and also that we're loving one another, Lord. And, and if anyone here is, is lacking that and fails the test, I ask you'll clearly show them that and that they can take care of that, Lord, and, and just ask you to come into their life and to change their heart and to give them a new heart heart that is willing to live a righteous life and to love others. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder you've given us today and the word and the Holy Spirit that you've placed within us. And we just thank you for your presence in our lives and that you walk with us every day. And we do all this in Jesus' name.